friend of mine who also happens to be a pastor and elder of this church and uh, someone who is um, just a real uh, gifted teacher wants to I just see in Russ um, who I'm about to introduce I see him in him um, as a true teacher does a desire that people really get it like he just wants to make sure that you get truth that's going to encourage you and and help to change you so would you welcome and honor Russ Folkler So grateful for the, the technical people here, aren't you? Thank you, thank you, Charles, and thank you, Sonia, tonight. For so much goes on behind the scenes, right? Which wouldn't happen without folks like that. Um, <laughs> and if you're kind of over in the corners, there's more chairs in the middle. If you want to be a little closer, I used to kind of kind of require that people move closer, but I'm, Susan remembers that. <laughs> She's laughing. <laughs> it's good you can laugh about things that weren't so comfortable at the time, huh? <laughs> All right, there we are. The slide has, has arisen. So my talk tonight is about... Yes, it just disappeared again. I'm not sure what happened. Thank you. My talk tonight is about uh, the Father's heart, and his heart is to bring us into the home of his heart. And so thank you, Father, for your great heart for us, and I ask, Holy Spirit, that you reveal more of Father God's heart for us tonight, and how good the, the Trinity is, how good Father Jesus and Holy Spirit are for us. We're going to be in some new territory tonight, so put your seatbelt on, put your crash helmet on, if necessary. (laughs) In fact, we invite you, Holy Spirit, to reveal the truth of God's being and the ways of God's being in this area. And I want each of you to know that you have freedom. It's not that I'm giving you permission, you already have it. Uh, you have you have freedom to question the material today. You have freedom to research this for yourself and to arrive at your own perceptions and conclusions. Okay, so everyone just say out loud, "I have freedom." freedom. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> it's not bad, but it's going to be a shock for a lot of you folks. And my heart isn't to be controversial, but I believe this is bringing more freedom for me, and I believe for many of you, it will bring more more freedom also. You're going, what is he going to talk about? (laughs) This is a quote from George MacDonald. This is and has been the Father's work from the beginning to bring us into the home of his heart. Makes me think of the uh, the story of the prodigal son, huh? Which is also really more about the father, wasn't it? The generous, loving father. And how he gave the son that wanted to leave freedom to leave, didn't he? But his, the father's heart was always for his son. He's for his sons, for his daughters. And that's, that's our, our heavenly father's heart for us too. I believe we're in a time of further reformation. It's always been about our Father's love for the world, the people he created through Jesus and in Jesus. But there's been a huge distortion of what Father's God, what Father's God, 
God's love really is. The Protestant Reformation, which was about 500 years ago, we're celebrating the anniversary, I think, in another few months, unleashed a lot of energy, freeing people to read the Bible for themselves in their own language and to see themselves as having direct access to God, not mediated by the clergy. Yay! That was really big, wasn't it? A lot, a lot of freedom, a lot of energy came. Yet, standard evangelical doctrines and most English translation, translations say that God's wrath will send many people to unending torment after they die. How many of you have been taught that? Me too. <clears throat> but is this really true? Trying to, sometimes you need three arms, right? What about God's wrath? Almost two years ago, I gave a talk called uh, two, two Versions of the Gospel. And I, I promised at the time, you may not remember, it's been so long, but I promised I would look more into what, what God's wrath meant in the New Testament because you see it mentioned a few times. What does that mean? Well, I ran into a problem. Well, here's one example. John three thirty six, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. This was not too long after John 3.16, so you're going, hmm. And uh, my problem was this. I had to face the New Testament scriptures about everlasting torment for those who aren't saved. Because it does seem to sound like, okay, the wrath means you're going to be tormented forever. At least... There seems to be a tie there. Have you ever wondered about that? Like, how, did, how does that work? Here's another example, Matthew twenty-five forty-six, And I can read the whole scripture here. That would probably be good. That's why I have my Bible. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This is Jesus speaking. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you. Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And this is the verse I'm talking about. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Heavy duty. Most of the time I tried to ignore that. How many of you have just kind of tried to ignore that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> this everlasting punishment seems tied to God's wrath. This didn't fit with my understanding of God's love and kindness. Is it, is it God's kindness that leads us into repentance or fear of God eternally punishing us? And we're going to watch a clip. We're going to see several clips tonight from uh, Paul Young in um, a series that he's done. It's, you can find it online. It's uh, Restoring the Shack on TBN. And he's going to start out talking about one of the chapters in the shack. And I'm going to just turn out a lot, off a light here. We're going to turn off some lights, including this one. That works. Is that right? Here we go.
takes a while to get on, come on. Another little statement further down that chapter. Jesus is about to go into the workshop and Matt catches him and he asks this question. So does that mean that all roads lead to Papa? Do all roads, all thought, all imaginations lead to relationship with God? Jesus laughs and he says, no. He says, most roads don't lead anywhere, but I will go down any road to find you. And that to me is one of those beautiful statements that emerged, something that I wrote that I didn't know would have the kind of impact it has. But it's the truth. There is no road that you're on, religious or non-religious, addiction, despairing, productive, artistic. There is no road that you're on that God will not go down to find you. But as a result of that one, I got accused of the word universalism. And uh, you know, a lot of times people would rather put you into a category and then sort of assassinate the category. Unfortunately, religious people, like my people, have done that for a long time. There is nothing outside of God. A lot of times we have this imagination that creation is sort of spun out there into the space outside of God. There is no space outside of God. Even outer space is inside of God. Anything outside of God would be non-being. Not only that, but the New Testament is very specific. Not only was creation created in God, but specifically in Christ. John 1.3, not anything that has come into being has come into being apart from him, referring to Jesus. Look at the other writings of Paul. Everything is by, for, through, and in him. It's sustained in him. So right from the get-go, let's make this declaration. Every single human being is in Christ because creation is in Christ. Read John 14, 20. Jesus says that in a very definitive way. So, do all roads lead to God? No. But let me tell you that even other faith traditions or non-faith traditions, people who don't have any sense of relationship with God, the Holy Spirit is still active. They have the ability to see things about our humanity that can only be the unveiling of their eyes by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is active regardless of the walls that we set up. We're the ones that build institutions. God does not. So if universalism means does every road lead to God, everything is the same, relativism, no. I'm not a universalist. Here's a tricky one. Is everyone saved? If universalism asks the question, in what Jesus has accomplished, is everyone saved? Or is only a few people saved? Only the ones that God chose from before the foundation of the world. That he chose some for destruction and some for new heavens and new earth. I categorically believe, along with very good company all the way back to the early church fathers, everyone is included in what Jesus did. What we brought to the table was to kill him. That's our contribution. God in the hands of angry sinners. But everybody got included. That is the good news. You got included. A lot of times we try to make theology into a transaction, a form of magic. We even came up with an incantation called the sinner's prayer. If you say this thing, and it's not in the Bible, but if you say this, then you get to move from here to there. Salvation, not only in time prior to creation, was accomplished in Jesus, but in time 
was accomplished for every single human being. For Christ reconciled the world to himself, and God the Father was in him, not counting their sins against them. How about Timothy? Here is a statement that is true and worthy of full acceptance that Jesus Christ is the Savior of all mankind, especially believers. But we have to participate in the outworking of what Jesus has accomplished because God has a high view of humanity. My choices matter. So potentially, even though what Jesus has fully accomplished is sure for me as a human being, I can reject it, potentially forever. So if you define universalism as the doctrine that everyone ultimately will be fully restored back to God, I'm not a universalist. Now don't get me wrong, I hope that that is true. I lean as far into that as possible without becoming a determinist. A determinist is someone who believes that you don't really have a choice. And there's a lot of theology that is deterministic. And if we make a doctrine out of this, I think we lose this sense of respect for the human being to make a choice. I also don't think that we'll ever be separated from God or that God will all anytime stop pursuing us. Universalism. Universal salvation, I'm in. Universal reconciliation as a doctrine, I'm not there. But here's my question for you. If God in God's wisdom prior to the creation of the universe, knowing that we would bring to the table the cross and that God would climb onto it and submit to our darkness, if God knows this and God knows how to win every single human being ever conceived fully back to face-to-face -face relationship, regardless if it takes ages of judgment, would you be opposed to it? See, I used to be opposed to it because I thought I was better than somebody. And there were people that I knew that I didn't want to make it. I'm not there anymore. Thank you. Just going to be quiet for a moment so you can just ponder that. So I'm just going to, as a, as a teacher, I'm just going to go over a few of those points again. Um, not covering everything. Uh, so universal salvation in that Jesus provided for everyone to be saved. William Paul Young says, yes, I'm in for that. That Jesus did all that was needed for us to be saved. And that's what Brent teaches. Absolutely. However what he called universal reconciliation, that everyone is automatically saved and reconciled, whether they want to be or not, he's not there. Because our yeses and our noes matter. Our participation matters. That's what relationship is about, right? Like when you marry someone and you discover that they have their own thoughts and feelings and uh, inclinations, and it doesn't always line up with what you think ought to happen. <laughs> um, but you can't really have a relationship if one of you is a puppet, right? Although I kind of tried to do that with Susan, but it didn't work very well. And God doesn't want that either, right? He wants us to be able to fully participate. Our yeses and our noes matter. Yeah. It's not determinism. Did you understand about determinism? Determinism means it's, you have no say in the matter. It just happens. And a lot of theology, as he mentioned, is deterministic. And I think a lot of people created that kind of theology because they, they felt that that would, make, that would exalt God if God decided everything. But that's a misunderstanding of God's character because God is a relational God.
So please don't call Paul Young a universalist because people are beating him over the head about it. And it's not exactly true, as you just heard. And I also wanted to touch briefly on, was Paul Young saying that the sinner's prayer is wrong? And the answer is no. If the sinner's prayer reflects our true intentions and desire for an ongoing relationship with the Trinity, then that's a good thing to say, isn't it? But it's a problem if it's treated as a, as a magic. It's magic words that just move you from one place to another automatically without your, you engaging your heart. Or if you're, if you're getting uh, fire insurance, you know, well, just in case this Christianity stuff is true, I, I'll say this so that I'm, I'm covered, you know. It didn't even cost very much. But that's not a relationship either, is it? So I'm going to focus on one verse as a useful example of really trying to understand what um, the Bible, in this case the Greek, uh, was really saying in a, in a passage that most of us have always assumed was the way it was. And that's Matthew twenty-five forty-six. We just read the whole thing. Um, <clears throat> and this time I've inserted uh, kind of the English versions of some of the Greek words. And these will go away into everlasting... And the word there is aenion, punishment, which is colossus, but the righteous into eternal, again, aenion, life, which is zoe. So a lot of this has to do with what aeonian or aenion means. I'm not a Greek scholar. Full confession. Don't know how to pronounce it. It's really important. So... Ionian, Ionian, is an adject, ad, adjective form of the noun ion, or aeon, which is used for life, lifetime, generation, an age, a long space of time, something that occupies an age, like the world occupies an age. A, a special period, here's a definition, a special period of time, longer or shorter, past or future, the boundaries of which are concealed, obscure, unseen or unknown. It does not mean never-ending. It just means the end is not known. Isn't that interesting? And I understand the, in, the, in the Greek, the, there's an implication of flow, like there's a flow of our life throughout our, our lifetime. There's, a, there's a, a, an idea of that things are flowing during an, an, an eon. And here's something else interesting. Actually, I'm not, it's not on there. I made it big enough. John of Damascus, who lived around A.D. 750, said the life of every man is called an, an ion. The whole duration of life of this world is called an ion. ion. And the life after the resurrection is also the, the ion to come. So that was his understanding. Isn't that interesting? So, uh, so think about... An, ad- an adjective actually modifies the, the noun that it's, it's kind of pointing to. I'm not, again, I'm not, I'm not going to give you a long t- <laughs> grammar uh, teaching here. So if you, could, you could say, oh, that's a tall man, or that's a tall building. Or look, there's a tall man in front of a tall building. Look, it's Shaq. Shaquille O'Neal in front of a tall building. Now, when I, is the tall man and the tall building the same size? No, it's, it has to do with what's tall for that particular object or subject. Does that make sense? So when you, when you talk about the... Uh, if, it's, if it's talking about God, and we know he's everlasting, so his age, his ion, is going to be, his ionion is going to be eternal. But they use the same word in both places here, you can see, both about the punishment and about the, um, the eternal life with, with God. And that confused people. And there were actually debates um, in church history where some people said, well, if you're going to use that word for eternal life, then it has to have the same duration for punishment. But that's not necessarily true, is it? It doesn't have to be that way. But you can see why they argue that. 
said, well, I want to make sure I get long life, so I, don't, I want it always to mean eternal. So there is a Bible translation called Young's Literal Translation that reflects the original Greek better. And this wasn't a recent translation. This was in the, uh, the late 1800s, I think 1868, and then the revision was in the 1892 or something. And it says, uh, And these shall go away to punishment age during, but the righteous to life age during. Again, this is literal, so it's not going to make as much flow in English. But it's age during, so the, the punishment is going to be during an age and the, and the righteous to life in a, in a particular age, age during. Let's see. Now, one of the major sources for people who didn't speak Greek or understand Greek, um, in fact, for the whole, for most of the church, from like 400 to 1500 or beyond was Jerome's Vulgate or Latin translation that was, that was for the common people that was the common translation of this verse and that particular translation uses the Latin term that means eternity and immortality eternum so you can understand why people who didn't know Greek would go okay that's what it means This is important because we're questioning what, those, what that verse meant. Well, wait. Uh, well, something got skipped. So let me talk for a moment about a slide that seems to have disappeared about the... Um, the word, I'll go back one, for punishment. The word for punishment is colossus. And that is a term originally used for pruning trees and to help them grow better. And then it was applied to corrective punishment, corrective discipline, if you will. And as a matter of fact, in, all, in a source I looked at, in all of Greek literature outside of the Bible, it's never used for anything but remedial punishment rather than this everlasting torment. That's encouraging. Now, in the King James Version, Jesus talks about hell. And actually, there's three different Greek words. You may know this if you've done any Bible studies. There's there's Hades, there's Tartarus, and there's Gehenna. Uh, but the ones that are the most scary that he talks about is when he's referring to this fiery place called Gehenna. And um, the origin of that term was, was that there was a, a place outside of Jerusalem where there were child, child sacrifices going on. It was called a topheth or tophet. And King Josiah, who loved God, cleansed it. He, he shut it down. He, he defiled it in a way that it would never be used for that religious use again. And um, an early Greek father named Oregon, Origen excuse me, researched the meaning of that term, and this is what he found. Besides its primary meaning of the Valley of Hinnom, outside of Jerusalem, it had come to acquire the secondary meaning of punishment with an intent to purify. We find a certain confirmation of what is said regarding the place of punishment intended for purification of such souls as are to be purified by, by torments agreeably. This is Origen's um, translation to the saying, the Lord cometh like a refiner's fire, and like the fuller's soap he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of the gold, silver and gold. So in other words, I know I'm putting some of you to sleep, and it'll get more interesting, but... <laughs> uh, in other words, the, the, the use of the term 
by the Jews of that day was also about a place of purification. Like Josiah cleansed it, it was, but it was also a place of fire. But fire, in this case, it was fire that was cleansing, that was corrective. So Paul Young talked about this a little bit. What if hell does not mean separation from God? How many of you were taught that? So he, he kind of touched on that a bit in, his, in the, the clip we just saw. And this is uh, one of the ways he makes this argument. So is, is hell or Gehenna a created thing? This place of purification or this, this place of, of punishment? Is it, a, is it a created thing? Yes. It, it, that's most likely, right? Very unlikely that God did not create it or had some, some role in it if, if he's using it. And then he brings up Romans 8. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Interesting argument. And Paul also makes very, Paul Young makes very good arguments just about we are all created in Christ Jesus. We are all in him. All of creation is. So we are going to get to hear again from Paul Young. And I th- thanks for doing the lights. Think about this. The love that God has for you, the love that I have for my children, is unconditional. There is nothing any of them could ever do that would stop them being my son or my daughter. I mean, they could even go through the legal activities of changing their name. But it wouldn't change that I love them. If you turn it up a little bit. Love is unconditional. But relationship because it is respectful for the other, is by necessity conditional. It matters the choice that my son or daughter makes with regard to me. Now, this is not true, but say that one of my sons began to be abusive towards one of my grandchildren. I would move heaven and earth to stop him. And it would impact our relationship, not my love for him. My love for him is unconditional. But I have a respect for my children. They have a capacity to do incredibly good things. Wonderful, creative. But they also have the capacity to do disastrous, destructive things. And the choices that they make, the choices that I make, actually matter. See, consequences aren't punishment. Consequences are the working out of a high view of humanity. That is, your choices actually matter. The way you live your life is not inconsequential. It ripples out. Your choice to hold a grudge, to hold a bitterness, to not forgive, those choices ripple out because you matter. And the impact on relationships, because relationships are conditional, is huge. Your choice to pray, your choice to forgive, your choice to act in kindness against something that has been hurtful, your choice to let go of an action that someone has done that has so hurt you, it ripples out. It matters. Could you hear that well enough? Okay. From where I was, where I was, it wasn't very loud. So Paul was talking a lot about relationship. There's his love for his children is unconditional, but for there to be a relationship, there has to be participation, interaction. And he also talks about how a father would feel if someone he loved was hurting somebody else he loved. What would you do? He said he'd move heaven and earth 
to stop any abuse of his children. Paul Young was abused as a child himself, and he feels very strongly about this, understandably. And Paul's saying that Father God is like that. Yeah. So when you start realizing that, you start seeing that even when Father God said, uh, if the day that you, to Adam and Eve, that you eat of that fruit, that you decide to go independent, you decide to go rogue, if you will, and decide, decide what's right and wrong on your own, and then you start doubting me. That day is a day when the, the fullness of life you have now is going to start diminishing. And the purpose was, I don't want you to have to stay in that state forever, right? Hell, hell would, if all of us lived in our sin, hurting each other, destroying each other, without end, that would be horrible. Without, without Jesus, without God, living forever would be a really bad thing. How many, how many think that? You don't, yeah, you don't have to agree, but that's that's how I think. So, thank, thankfully, Nero died, and Attila the Hun died, and Hitler died, and um, because God decreed this limit, because He knew all kinds of evil was going to result from from that those choices to live independently and decide for ourselves what's right and wrong. In the age to come, the ones who still choose evil instead of returning to Father God will be separated from those who have returned to Father's God, Father God's heart. So there will be a separation between us and the ones who still choose evil, but they will not be separate from God's love. They won't be separated from God's fiery love. And Paul's, we're just going to have a short clip from Paul. I'm sorry, I'm grateful for the ones that are doing the lights on and off. We're going to, we're going to do it again. <laughs> okay. Oh, there it is. My slide showed up. So what is this fire? God is a consuming fire. But what if this fire has a restorative intent? What if this fire is for us and not against us? And here I stand with George MacDonald. He's the pastor, theologian who led C.S. Lewis into a deeper acknowledgement of Jesus in his life. And he writes in unspoken sermons, if you trust the nature of this God, you will run to God with your arms wide open and you will say, come on, judge me to the core and burn out of me everything that keeps me from being fully free and fully alive. This is a God who intends to free us as human beings. Potentially, we can say no for the rest of eternity. That is a possibility. But we will never not be pursued by this unrelenting affection, this God who loves us, loves us, and loves you the way we love our children, unconditionally, and yet respects your ability to say no. But that will not prevent his pursuit of us. He is the hound of heaven. He is the one who is after us, as any parent will be after their child. This is a God who loves us. Yeah. Why don't you go, go ahead and keep the lights off because we'll be seeing another one in just a moment. So, this, this father who truly loves us has this fiery wrath at what evil does, both to the victim and to the perpetrator. The fi this fiery wrath comes from God's fiery love for each one of us. And God loves us and gives us the scary gift of living out the consequences of our heart stances and behaviors, our choices, our actions. 
perhaps in the Ionian Colossus, that, that age of corrective punishment, it will just be a more intense form of the prodigal son, or for a bit like C.S. Lewis's story, The Great Divorce. Possibly. I'm, not, I'm, just, I'm speculating about that. But that's what it begins to feel like. And now we're going to see one more clip. I was having a conversation with one of my kids. And they were saying, so God is love, right? Yes. And that word in the Greek is what? It's agape. And agape is what? Well, it's other-centered, self-giving love. It's unconditional. God loves us without condition. There is nothing more that you could ever do or not do that would change the way God loves you. It is the way of God's being toward you. Relationships conditional. Your choices matter. Your ability to say no matters. But love is agape. God is agape. My son says, so, so I'm reading 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's got this big list of love. Love is this, love is this, love is not this. So could I put God in there for love? Because it's agape, right? I said, yes, absolutely. And he said, so love is kind and love is patient. Dad, love does not keep a record of wrongs. He's right. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. But a lot of the way we look at God, the wrath of God, the justice of God, is dependent on God keeping a record of wrongs. How does it change when we begin to understand that there is something about this love that is so much bigger and greater and more wonderful than we could have imagined? God is good. But God is a fiery fury that is opposed to everything that hurts the one he loves. And that one is you. So we've been talking about a God who is love, not just does loving things, but is love by nature. And what does that mean for my world? not just my friends and my family, but my enemies. Is there anyone in my world that God does not love? And what does that mean for me? Well, we'll continue this conversation later. Wow, see, you can turn the lights on, thanks. Wasn't that beautiful and powerful? Yeah, that was my favorite part. In the past, I'll confess that I have read 1 Corinthians 13 and wondered, wait, how do I, does this apply to you, God? Are you these things? Because I read these other things that don't, make, don't add up to this. Anybody else ever struggle with that? Yeah, yeah, so... Um, it's so much easier to believe this for me now. Yeah. So, Father, we, Jesus, Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are kind, that you are patient, that you don't keep a record of our wrongs. that you bear all things and believe all things and hope all things and endure all things, that your love, who you are, for us, never fails. And your love never fails for the, the babies that, that die early or 
for the ones that are wrapped with mental illness or all the many things that happen to people that cut their lives short before they have a chance to know you in this life. Your love never fails. And we're so grateful. And we want to get to know you better and let you in even deeper and trust you even more. And Holy Spirit, we invi- I invite you to, to work in me and all that want your work to open our hearts up further to the truth that you, that you are a good God. Amen. So, further, more good news. Paul Young's coming December 9th. For, for, because he has relationship with this, this very modest church, and we just love that about him. So here's some suggested reading. Um, I've been reading the book Heaven's Doors Wider Than You Ever Believed by George Saris. Uh, it's currently, at least last time I checked, it's available for $4.95 uh, for a Kindle version, which seems pretty good. And he goes over a lot more than I could cover about the language, about the sayings of Jesus, um, about lots and lots of questions you might have. He, he, he covers a lot of them. He's, he comes from an evangelical background. He went to Gordon-Conwell Seminary. And you can, you, as you read it, you can just sense what a good heart he has. Even when he's been really kind of persecuted for, for coming out and saying this, uh, his heart has not been to be bitter or resentful, but to love the ones that have rejected him. So that's I recommend. Uh, Paul Young recommends Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, Hope, Hell, and the New Jerusalem by Brad Jerzak. And I've, used, I've read some of Brad's other books, and they were great. And I also recommend the book that came out recently by Paul Young, Lies We Believe About God. And I will be uh, putting this up on the Blazing Fire Family Chat Facebook page when, as soon as we can, we'll have the, uh, the slides up there. So if you want to re- refer to any of this, you'll be able to. Yeah. That was a lot of stuff. <laughs> so it'll be good probably to look it over again. Um, we have a little bit of time before, uh, before 8.30. Um, Many of you may just want to um, just to be for a bit and think about this. But if you have a question, I may not have the answer, but I'm happy to give it a shot. Or what they what Paul Young says they do in Canada, they do Q and R questions and responses. <laughs> they're 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 too humble to say they have the answer in Canada, apparently. Yeah. Okay. Well, I ask, I ask then the, for the ministry team to come forward. And in about five minutes, we'll need you to go pick up your children if you're a parent with children here. And I love you, and I'm thankful for you being here today and processing this with me.
Your presence is the promise, for I am a pilgrim on a Over yourself. May we never lose our. 